Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Well, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Moser here, as was mentioned in the intro. Uh, We are so excited about today's podcast as a part of our Strategy Matters series. Specifically, we've been harping on this theme of change in L&D. Our last couple ones, as you know, with Tim Clark, who wrote the wonderful book Epic, was in our last podcast. And then before that, Con and I talked a bit about change in methodology. Today, we are so excited and honored to have a practitioner. David James, uh, actually joining us from across the pond. He is the chief learning officer at Loop, which we'll hear a bit about in just a moment, but also has his own podcast, which we'd love you to subscribe to. I was blessed to be on that with him a bit ago called the Learning and Development Podcast. I was particularly been drawn to Dave's thinking and work. I've followed him on LinkedIn, but I just, I'm just so impressed with his future thinking. He's really a thought leader for me in this space, a mentor and someone who I, I respect greatly and have been following and, and has really helped me in my thinking in this I especially appreciate the way he challenges the status quo. He is not afraid to take a run at L&D and the things we've done and the sacred cows we've had forever. But in many ways, we're kindred spirits when it comes to his railing around a performance first mindset and really serving learners with where it counts in the workflow and what they are coming to us to do, which is to better perform. So, David, welcome, my friend. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure. So great having you here. So, hey. I'm not a big guy about intros and details. I'd much rather have my uh, my interviewees uh, help us with that. And I think I, and, and even tying it into the theme here. Right. So. So tell us a bit about your professional journey. It is really, frankly, an impressive resume. Uh, Lloyd's, EDS, Lehman Brothers, Disney for quite a while. And now, of course, mm-hmm. you find your way to loop. Take us through that journey. And, and, and a part of that, please. How has that evolved your thinking? Because you were a classic L&D guy. I mean, if I look back at the, the resume. So how does that help get you to where you are today and how you look at what we do? Bob, you're completely right there. I think my path in learning and development is one that many people will resonate with, especially people who've come up at a similar time. So in the late 1990s, I went on a training course. I saw somebody, this was when I was at Lloyd's, <laughs> I saw somebody at the front of the room and I couldn't believe that was a job. I thought, That's exactly what I want to do. So uh, I made friends with the trainer. Um, Mm. I said, look, is there any way that that I can have a go at this? He took me under his wing. He was, you know, became a friend very quickly and he's still a friend now. And he let me guest on that exact course. So I was Mm. I had my day job, which was as a team leader in a telephone contact center. And then I was cutting my teeth and learning the trade as a trainer. And first of all, it was during that coaching program. They then took advantage and thought, well, this guy is crazy running two jobs, during one in the day, one in the evening. And they, <laughs> they let me run induction in the evening after I'd done my, my day job. But it, it wasn't long before I realized that I could probably do this in one job. And that's when I joined EDS. Mm. And it was a fantastic role. It was a standalone training officer role. It was in check clearing in the in the beginning of mm. the 2000s. So I I think there were about 200 people in this particular office. I was the sole trainer. I started off induction. 
developed some management training, some customer service training, built up the suite of training. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, this, yeah, this is there. classic stuff. So, <laughs> so I learned to be a trainer. Then I learned to be a designer. I learned to be a, a training manager. My step into Lehman Brothers was only a short one because I thought I'd try myself in a different context, hmm. but found it very much the same as I was doing at EDS, but in a larger organization. The opportunity came for Disney. I took a, a bit of a risk. It was only on a three month contract. So mm. I was leaving a full time job and I thought, well, Disney's too big an opportunity. But six months later, I was asked to run the team and I'd never run a learning and development function. Wow. So this, this incorporated coaching and mentoring. It had more of a digital element that I was used to. Very different from the training that that I'd mm. done previously. It was much more around business partnering. It was much more around developing solutions that helped to drive the business forward. And that was where my first, I suppose, introduction into an organization where motivation was not an issue. Where, where I was at Lloyd's, mm. at EDS, at Lehman, there was an element of the, the learning and development or the training role was helping to, to tap inside the individual to bring more out for the purpose of the organization. But at Disney, there were people mm. bringing their whole selves that were so inspired by the brand. They wanted to give their all. And I was fortunate to spend eight years at Disney. I spent wow. five years running the, the UK learning and development team and building that out. And then after that time, I got the tap on the shoulder and asked whether I'd look after the entire region. So Europe, Middle East and Africa. Wow. Um, and then my role became not just learning, but also the talent and OD element. I mean, it was a huge my time at Disney was was incredible because joining in 2006, leaving in 2014, Disney was being disrupted by digital to an yeah. incredible extent. It was a tumultuous time, but but one I thoroughly enjoyed. But I suppose to relate that then finally to wrap this up into how that then shaped the way that I think now is that when I was I suppose, in the last year or so of my UK learning and development role, and then in the two years that I was the director, I realized that my role was nothing to do with learning. It was about performance and capability. Mm. And it was almost as if the 12 years that I'd spent focusing on developing my facilitation skills, my learning design, and my ability to inspire people in a classroom or towards an LMS was useless because people didn't want to have that conversation. They wanted to ask me whether Italy will be ready to, yep. to pivot from a physical and flourishing publication, publishing business to a fully digital one without any churn and working on their own capability. My first thoughts were, well, there isn't a training course or e-learning for that. <laughs> <laughs> Hence, my, my pivot towards a much more performance focused approach to learning and development. Our paths are similar. Right? I, I think I shared this on your podcast, you know, that I, I find so many of us who have lasted in this business, we didn't necessarily come from training. You know, we kind of fell into it as a passion and like your story about the trainer and then and then we journeyed through those many roles. And so here's my lead into question, too, which I think you are really so wonderful at helping champion is that with all that pedigree, right, with all those years of being in the trenches and working so hard and mastering those many skills and roles you described, and, and L&D is steeped in theory, right? It's, there's, we're, we're proud of Addy. We don't just wing it. We'd be responsible to do that. So I, I get all of that. The dark side I have found, David, in this is that it really makes us a rather conservative and rigid industry. And, and you just described a very tumultuous world that Disney was going through. Yet I find change in L&D to be really hard. 
we're often asked when we go into our, our own clients about who is the toughest stakeholder. You know, obviously we're there to help the end user or the performer, but hands down, it's the L&D team every time. Yeah. You know, so the irony is, you know, we're supposed to be in the change business, yet we're the toughest stakeholder often to change. Why do you think that is? And what, what do you think we need to do to change? And why is it so important now than maybe ever? Bob, I think that, uh, that you've alluded to some of the deeply entrenched reasons why this is difficult. I'd say that there are two things that learning and development are really hard at that we try to advocate strongly that our stakeholders and our attendees get better at. That's change and leadership. So so number one, we're not very good at change. And the, one of the reasons is that when you are not exposed to senior leadership, perhaps to the extent that you are when you are looking after entire functions and you're sitting on the board and you're hearing about the mm. pivots entire businesses need to make, then you're in a classroom looking at people really enjoying your stuff. You're mm. getting eights, nines and tens on your happy sheets and you're interpreting that as making a real difference. The problem is, is that that's 12 people at a time. It's not enough. And I think that we get lost in the trenches almost. And, and, mm. then, and then you have a look at how we measure it. So it's how many people come and attend. And Bob, I have no doubt that the listener fills up their schedule, their calendar of training programs every time they get uh, the great response on the day. They get people staying behind to say that this has changed their life. They get the happy sheets as well. But when the door shuts, well, mm. we know nothing really changes, right? <laughs> the, but we misinterpret all of this as sustained change. And this mm. is why there's all of this stuff. You know, you you hear that you can only develop skills in a classroom or you can only do this. You can only do that. We misinterpret the signals we receive face to face ridiculously. And then that's before I, I even start on the overestimate uh, our ability to actually enhance performance over e-learning. That's a very different matter. But I think that it's that if I always say that if you plant training, you grow trainers and the classroom <laughs> is almost our greenhouse where we breed the, you know, breed them. But then all we do is what I described my one was you get better at facilitation. You design suites of programs. You apply all your attention to running all of those. Your stakeholders recognize learning and development as academic. And so this continues. It's not until you and I will know you speak to very senior stakeholders who are pulling their hair out saying, well, where do you get forward thinking and progressive learning and development people who aren't focused on the classroom, who aren't instructional designers and who aren't um, limited by the capabilities of an LMS? Mm. And the problem is that it's too easy to recognize everything that I've discussed as success to the detriment of what needs really needs to be done. But that's not just because of the, the inability to change. The other side, as I mentioned, is a lack of leadership. I don't think that there is one vision now for what learning and development can and should be doing. Its impact on uh, organisations and its people in a way that isn't about attendance and completion. What I think it's about is recognizing as people transition into and through an organization that they are guided and supported to do the right things at the right time so that they can get results, almost providing them with the confidence and competence to be able to do what's expected, exhibiting those expected and rewarded behaviors so that we raise the benchmark of mm. what successful performance is in every organization rather than overwhelming everybody when they enter the organization with too many slides and too much content and neglecting new managers till they've made all the mistakes and they've learned how to do the job by hook or by crook. 
it's you know we, we look in too much about what we can do rather than what we should do but that starts with vision and that starts with leadership well and, and you once posted i love this because obviously near and dear to my heart that the point of need is our biggest opportunity mm. i had never been shown that when i entered this business i pivoted on analysis and task and addy and, and again i want to feel carefully because i am not bashing addy mm. you know but to your point you know where you, you get behavior for what you're incented to do yeah. Right. And you just mentioned a whole bunch of incentives we historically have tuned into that really don't, frankly, have a lot to do with ultimately performance. So you said the further away we get from this point of need, the less chance we have of making a difference. Can you give us a little understanding of what you meant by this? And do you see companies systemically turning to this view versus the more traditional training one? Can you speak to that a little bit? What, what I'm describing there is I'm inspired a lot by your work, Bob. But I think you said that the sweet spot of learning and development is the moment of apply. Mm. And we've always known that in learning and development. And that's why we run exercises. What we do is when, when we take people away from the work to help them with presentation skills or communication skills, we have them practice something so that when that situation occurs at some undetermined time in the future, that there's this remnants there, almost like a, a muscle memory that has them say, this was what I was waiting for. And whether it's days, weeks, months or years, they will then perform. But that's not true. <laughs> it's a myth that we've been telling ourselves for a long, 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 long time. And we bust that myth when we think of ourselves and the last training courses we went on. Yeah. And we're thinking, well, the only thing that's left of those are remnants. They're like dust in my mind. They're regardless of how much I actually practiced. So all we can do is bring the work closer to the, an inverted commas, solution. Mm. But, but this is no longer a proof of concept, Bob. Google's proved this to us that this is the case <laughs> over over a decade now since. Yep. And I know it's been going longer, but since every, you know, ubiquitous access to to that with our mobile devices or, or opening up our organizations to Google. We know that when we are in the flow of work, we will Google something. We will go to YouTube. We'll go to somewhere we trust. We'll grab what we need and we will apply it immediately. But learning and development hasn't learned from that. It's almost as if there is this visceral reaction to the self-determination, to mm. the uh, the grabbing something from outside of the organization. And then you get this versus deep learning and all yep. of this jargon that we've helped to create and trench ourselves in, in the way that we like to do things. And where I think this stems from most of all is that it used to be the case that learning was the most appropriate way of helping to aid performance, that you would bring people together or you would you'd sit one to one, you'd prepare somebody, they would retain all of that and then they would be able to work. Maybe that's because work was more manual or repeatable, predictable even. Mm. But in today's day and age, mm. Things just aren't, aren't yeah. that way. We've confused corporate learning and development with education. They are so different. I mean, they might look and smell the same when you've got rows of chairs in classrooms, which which, again, is up for debate whether whether that should be the case at all. But in the world of work, it is about what you do. Nobody gets rewarded for what they know or what they've learned. It's all about what they do. Mm. And this is why I think that you can you can know all of the learning theory in the world. But whether it's all relevant still today is a different matter. That's why I'm much more interested in performance consultancy. That's why I'm much more interested in in starting designing at the moment of apply. It's at the point of doing that we work our way back 
and recognize what work is really about, not what learning is really about. Boy, that's so insightful. You know, I think we, I think we talked about in our podcast together that one of my ahas in this journey, my friend, when I, I you know, I, I went through this shift just like you. I was I was everything you described. And one of the biggest things when I got to workflow analysis, as we call it, was how little I knew about the true workflow mm. of those that I was training. I knew the stuff that the SMEs wanted them to know. And I might become familiar with the system that they have to ultimately use. But context, the true workflow of application where performance manifests itself, that's where it happens at the the point of performing and and the context of doing work. I had no clue about. And I want to pivot on two things in our next couple of questions. So clearly part of the pivot is starts with us. We've been ISDs instructional designers for years. I like the term, and you said it, performance consultants. It has some, some innuendos to performance management and other things, but really it starts with branding. It starts with how mm. we see ourselves, how we, the role we see ourselves. But that's a huge leap for many. I, I love your story at Disney about being pulled into the deep end, like it or not, mm. right? I, I just think that's just so rich and, and, I, and I would have loved to have seen the work that your team did. But I'm, I'm guessing different skills emerged, different approaches emerged than you had seen in your more traditional ISD jobs before that. What are the new roles of L&D in this world that you're envisioning? First of all, to, to answer that previous point at Disney, we, we were hamstrung hugely by technology. The LMS mm was clunky and virtually unusable. And it was just filled full of generic content. And, and of course, it, too expensive to, to bring anything that might be bespoke. <laughs> so we've pretty much been there and everything we did was face to face. So the tools that we used, especially on that digital pivot for publishing, was all face to face and manual. It was based on accelerated apprenticeships, mm. but with the new goals in mind, because as, as we know, digital isn't just a, a new set of activities and capabilities. You're trying to achieve different ends. A different thing. Love that. Exactly. Yeah. So so it all starts with a vision. It does start with us and it it starts on a a refocus from developing learning, designing and delivering learning content to understanding what it is that people should be doing or want to be doing differently. And I use that word want to be doing. I think that's absolutely critical in the new world of of L&D, because the easiest thing in the world to do is what we've always done, but it's delivered minimal results. And that's based on we need you to know this. Yep. Unfortunately, there are no hooks to hang that on. And so all those coats fall down by the wayside and nothing sticks. But if we can help people to do what they're trying to do better, why, that's the very definition of traction. Mm. So if we understand what it is that people are trying to achieve and the most appropriate way of doing this is during transitions, again, going back to to some of the the worst mistakes we make in learning and development, presenting too much content to people when they first join. They can't remember the person sitting next to them's name. They're not Mm going to remember how to log on to your intranet, do their expenses, uh, find their way around the building (laughs) and all of that stuff. And just because you've got two hours in order to tell people that stuff doesn't mean you need to tell people that stuff. It's a complete waste of time. And on the other side, there are another important transition with new managers. So what do we do with new managers? We promote them and leave them. And the reason we leave them is that there isn't a space on the next class for another nine months. And you can't make that one. Well, that's 12 months then. You've got to help people. The minds and eyes are wide open to the opportunities right in front of them. So what I'm saying is. Uh, let's scaffold the work experience. Let's mm. not create a separate or parallel learning experience. But if we understand what people are trying to do, so yeah. it's all about in service of their goals, find out what they're trying to do right, and then find out what's stopping them from doing that efficiently. 
So what friction are they experiencing? And I like the, the word friction because it's a word that's used in digital products. Amazon used this one. If you're creating the ideal consumer experience, they're not trying to create the ultimate consumer experience. They're trying to redefine the use of the consumer experience to make it easier than any Ever. other organization yep. to help you get your stuff tomorrow. By yeah. even pulling it shopping is, isn't doing it justice. Yeah, yeah. So they recognize what you're trying to do and then they remove steps, uh, removes friction as I much as that. possible. Imagine you're doing this for work. So finding out what are people trying to do when they first join? Well, I'm trying to pass my probation. Uh, I'm trying to get stuff done. I'm trying not to mess up. Uh, and I'm trying to prove that I'm the right person for the job. OK, so what's stopping you? You know, you're not creating curriculums. You're not guessing what people need. You're starting with the goal. You're figuring out what's getting in the way. And then you iterate. You give and people you give people some tools, give them as little as you possibly can in order to move the needle. But keep your eye on uh, on your success measures, because that's all you're going to be focusing on in order to help move that needle and just add bits where required. Take bits away if that's needed as well. But it's not about curriculum. It's not about just content. It's contextually relevant stuff that's mm. surfaced in anticipation of their moments of need. I love the pivot. You know, it's funny because as I'm sitting here listening to you describe that friction metaphor, which I just loved, is so we're trying to onboard somebody. And so what do we do? We put them in a highly frictionable environment, meaning the classroom, meaning this room in, in, in the third floor of Building 9, which is miles from their office and what they care about in their parking lot, parking spot and the people who they work with. Right. And so we're, we, we actually throw in these moments of friction of our own doing. You know, not maliciously, but in our own doing when we should be, I love what you say, removing those as much as possible. You know, Khan, my, my dear partner, says, you know, design for apply first and then backfill with training as little as you possibly can. And, and he always emphasized that little as you possibly can part mm. because that's the square peg round hole. The apply stuff is the round peg round hole. There's defendable times to teach. There's, mm -hmm. there's safe criticality, death reasons to mentor and coach. But his point is, we've always made that be the deliverable. You're pivoting on, no, 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 no. Make that be the last extreme that mm -hmm. we would have people do. Brilliant. Yeah. So friend, technology. This is the other part of this brave new world. And you mentioned ones of the past, LMS and others. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about those, right? This is it's, it's a brave new world out there. We use words like ecosystem, blended learning, micro learning, we're throwing these things all around on the technology side. I mean, you you're have this company, Loop, that you're a mm -hmm. part of. I, I've read the description of what you folks do. How, what do you see the new tool set of this being that we have to become more aware of and comfortable with? So, Bob, again, I think this is a pivot. I think for too long we've seen the technologies, the, the learning technologies that we're all aware of as almost the silver bullets. We've seen them as as the answer I mean, and they're sold as such as well we've got systems that do SCORM and XP, uh, XAPI they've got communities they do social learning peer-to-peer -peer. there's a coaching element you've got all this stuff and you have a look and say well that must be it that's a Swiss army knife of all learning so I plug that in and off I go but the only problem is, is that there isn't a single technology business that's ever launched that's that successful. One of the missing elements of, uh, of learning development these days is a product manager, somebody mm. who recognizes what the real problems are and then looks for the right solutions to fix that. And mm. then moving forward onto this one here. And what I say is that technology should be the cherry on your cake. It's not the cake. 
So if you've got digital capabilities, if you are a performance consultant and you understand what it is that people are trying to do and what's getting in the way, if you can roadmap with them what a solution could look like, a minimum valuable solution that starts moving the needle, and you can use the tools and, and techniques of a product manager or a software developer, just a white wall and post-it notes to map this out with the client themselves. Use agile approaches as well. So you're building mm. with and for the client and you're sprinting in order to get a prototype type in their hands so that you can see whether it actually affects performance i haven't mentioned technology so what you should do is once you've got something you've seen something that works grab something use your sharepoint or, or use a, use some tools get it in the hands try to use it then what you should do is as a proof of concept that technology can make this easier and then mm. you use smart technology. You find ways to remove the human element and you can automate. So one of the things we've been working on with, uh, with Loop is running a campaigns engine that, first of all, integrates into the tools people use for work, Slack, Teams, email, if that's still where people uh, actually do their work. And then you surface the useful stuff in anticipation of those moments of need. But they're mm. not guesses. You've already whitewalled with them. They already told you that on day three they needed this. Okay, we'll give you that. And they said that they wanted it in this format. And in the prototype, we saw that when they had that, then that meant that they could do X in this way. So, mm. so what you can do is you could do this manually, first of all. Again, any successful startup will um, will have manual processes at the beginning to really refine what they are trying to do. And then they will automate that. They'll either build a, a smart tool or they'll bring in and plug in a smart tool in order to automate that. But they don't automate it before they know that it solves the problem. And there lies the, the thing. Now, I've talked all the way through the, uh, the process, but it all comes back to it has to solve a real problem that is identifiable by your end user. If it's not a problem for them, it's not a problem at all. And yep. too long in learning and development, we've been solving our problems with technology, mm. which is how do I get my classroom on your desktop? Yep. Uh, yeah. How do, I, how do I create content repositories? You know, all of that stuff, which isn't a problem for the end user. The end user is trying to figure out how do I get myself known in this organization so that I can influence the right people? Yep. You know, a friend of mine challenged me once in on demand. and He said, you know, you guys made that word up. It was it was an accessibility challenge not a accountability or contextual challenge. And so to your point, our job was to take what were distant what classrooms we drove to, a couple of clicks in an LMS to take you know, just in time. Mm. But on, I have a very different view of on-demand now. On-demand is, is in the eyes of the consumer. Yeah. And to your point, if I don't see a problem or a need or a use, even though it might be wonderful, and sitting on an LMS and be award-winning in design, I have no need for that. Yeah. I have no demand for that. So if you're going to make something on demand for me, you have to fundamentally understand what my my demands are, mm. not yours, my demands. And therefore, if you can map to them, I'll consume all day. I'll even fuddle through some bad design because mm. because I see the value in the end goal. That pivot is really such just such an important thing, I think, for us to understand. So, friend, a couple of things and we got to wrap up here, unfortunately. Mm. What's your feeling on with all you just described? With the minimizing friction, with the intuitive technologies that are coming that you guys are experimenting with within your organization, where does stepping away, where does walking into a, a, a room with other folks, virtually or otherwise, come mm. in and what's its place in your opinion? Well, first of all, Bob, I don't like usually to contribute to the cult of the classroom. The absence of me talking about it isn't that I don't think that <laughs> it could too. be a useful 
right. means of, of, you know, it can't be helpful, but I don't want to contribute to its cult. But I do think that there's a place, but there's a place for bringing people together to do what people do well. Let me tell you what they don't do well. Absorb an enormous amounts of information when they're unfamiliar with their surroundings. Uh, absorb an enormous amount of information when they don't see that it's relevant to them. Spend three, four, five days with a group of people <laughs> largely silent and trying to absorb stuff. They, they, these are the worst examples of how to use bringing people together. But if you are going to bring people together, what a great opportunity to share stories, to discuss, challenge, debate, to to talk about how things relate to their situations and understand what other people are doing and trying. I'd say don't tell people to shut up, get them involved. But it doesn't need to be a classroom. It just needs to be a room. And I think it all comes back down to what are you trying to achieve? Like you, I do agree to be done for safety purposes, for preparing people for roles that require the practice, the simulation and all of that stuff. I think, you know, there's no getting away. That could be fantastic. As for bringing people together, pulling them together for what would be seen as a traditional training program, I think it's an abundant misuse of company resources. Brilliant, brilliant. Friends, so we we remain platform agnostic in the work that we do and and bringing the five moments to folks. But at the same time, the technology is a big part of that. And we're the first to, to go there. Tell us a bit more, if you don't mind, about Loop. Loop is a next generation learning management system, which is totally aimed at helping people at their moment of need. Now, there's the other stuff. There's everything you'd expect. You can add SCORM content, manage classroom events or uh, face-to-face activities. All of that stuff you'd expect all happens. The thing about Loop is that I've helped to design the system that I wish that I'd had at Disney Mm. and Lehman's (laughs) and Lloyd's. It's not a repository where you you place content. It's the place where you build live campaigns that are built to address, first of all, connect with the tools people use for work, that surface useful stuff when it's anticipated, that uses deep, smart data in order to get as close to the point of work that is actually possible and use actual user behavior and feedback to get closer to the point of need and explore further needs, which is about the friction they experience in service of their goals. Brilliant, brilliant. And actually, we have a Technology Matters series, which we might talk to you more about that in a bit deeper, but this clearly applies to that. Uh, Folks, we hope you check it out. David, my friend, so appreciate your leadership, your vision, your passion, clearly. I I think we are sitting at an interesting time in L&D. And so I, I don't think we can ignore these conversations any further. I can't thank you enough for your 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 candor and your and your willingness to put yourself out there and and challenge the status quo in a way that I think today is more important than ever. So thanks so much for joining us. We so appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, friends. We'll be back for another future podcast and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the five moments of need performance matter series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.